0: Bonjour! Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast, is the podcast that's all about the cuisine that is said to have founded modern cooking. French ingredients and dishes have been the starting block for many of the world's best chefs and cooks. On Fabulously Delicious, you'll learn all about those dishes and ingredients, as well as get to know more about fabulous French foodies. I'm your host, Andrew Pryor. Enchanté! Enchanté! Ten years ago, my life changed when I competed on MasterChef Australia. And now I'm living my best French life right here in the French countryside, of course. Here, life is all about cooking, eating, meeting wonderful food producers, chefs, home cooks, drinking amazing wines, eating some of the over, would you believe, 1500 French cheeses? And sharing these fabulous experiences with you, my fabulously delicious audience. I hope you're enjoying them. Today, we are doing something a little bit different Over the next three weeks, I'll be bringing you a collaboration with one of my favourite podcasters, Gary Giraud, from the French History Podcast. As you know, if you're an existing listener, oh, by the way, if you're a new listener, bonjour, enchanté, and thanks so much for listening. I hope you love the podcast and subscribe and follow if you do. So, as I was saying, recently I joined the Evergreen Podcast Network, and one of the many fabulous podcasts on the network is the French History Podcast. Gary, the host, I recently met, and I was in awe, to be honest, as his podcast is one that I love listening to and await the next episode of each week. When we met online through Evergreen, we got talking and the topic of Thomas Jefferson came up and his connection to France and French food through his personal valet, James Hemmings, who was actually the first American to train as a chef in France. We were then engaged in a lengthy conversation about this, and decided that it would be a great opportunity to collaborate on an episode with each other. So, today, I'm bringing you Gary's episode from the French History Podcast on Thomas Jefferson. I hope you enjoy it. If you love it, and if you love Gary as much as I do, then you can head over to evergreenpodcast.com to find more episodes. Then, next week, I'll be bringing you an episode on James Hemming and his relationship with French food, and why is an important figure in French cuisine. And then, the following week, I'll be bringing you an episode from the two of us that is a bit of an introduction to us both, to each other's listeners. Plus, there'll be some more in-between episodes. And then, we'll get back to our normal twice-weekly episodes picking up on the A to Z of French Herbs series. So, sit back, turn the volume up, if you're not driving, pour yourself a glass of wine, break a baguette, add a bit of saucisson maybe, some delicious cheese, and enjoy today's episode of Fabulously Delicious, an episode on Thomas Jefferson and Paris, France, with the French History Podcast.
1: For just under 10 months, four delegates from the United States of America, Benjamin Franklin, John Jay, Henry Lawrence, and John Adams, negotiated with representatives from the Kingdom of Britain within the Hôtel de York. The Hôtel was only one street and a bridge crossing from the Louvre and the Ile de la Cité. There in the heart of Paris, the gathered Anglophones haggled over the settlement of a country on the other side of the Atlantic. On the 3rd of September, 1783, the two sides finalized an agreement. For the United States, the Treaty of Paris was no less important to its existence than the Declaration of Independence, as its terms guaranteed recognition by Britain to its right to exist as an independent, sovereign nation. In contrast, the Treaty was an utter humiliation for the British delegates who refused to pose for the commemorative painting. It is no coincidence that the fate of the United States was settled in Paris. Paris was a great city, whose population eclipsed every other urban center in Europe save only London. It was the most important city in the Kingdom of France, the world's great land power. Moreover, it was France that had tipped the scales in favor of the American colonists. After a number of French adventurers supported the early U.S. war effort, the young Marquis de Lafayette chief among them, France entered the conflict in early 1778. Louis XVI and his ministers cared little for the American cause, instead seeing the war as an opportunity to enact vengeance on a hated rival. Motivations aside, French soldiers fought British troops across the world, draining the British of manpower and resources ...eventually allowing the Americans to win a prolonged war of attrition. If American independence started in Boston, it ended in Paris. Yet, 1783 was not the end of American attachment to the City of Lights... ...and France in general. France had been America's greatest ally... ...and one of the wealthiest and most powerful countries in the world. Even after the war ended... American politicians knew that they had to maintain good relations with their benefactor. This task had been most expertly achieved by the polymath Benjamin Franklin, whose brilliance, wit, and endless charm allowed him to woo every French gentleman and their wives to the American cause. Yet, Franklin was already 77 years old when he signed the document guaranteeing America's independence. Moreover, with peace settled, John Jay aimed to return to the United States to pursue high office. Jay's departure spurred Congress to appoint Thomas Jefferson as Minister Plenipotentiary in Paris, tasked with negotiating treaties of friendship and commerce, with France. Jefferson's connection to France began at a young age. Since the 17th century, France was regarded by other Europeans as the preeminent country for art, literature, and culture. As such, any well-educated European or European colonist had to learn some French, and Jefferson was no exception. As a child, he was tutored in the language and read classic French books. For literature, he drew upon the great playwrights Jean Racine and Molière. For science, Georges-Louis Leclerc, the Comte du Buffon. The 18th century produced a flowering of political treatises by writers such as Diderot, Montesquieu, and Voltaire, all of which Jefferson voraciously consumed and incorporated into his own ideas for governance. Even before Jefferson first set foot in France, he had an idea of the country based on the achievements of its most renowned international figures. Jefferson's voyage to France nearly occurred in 1782. That November, he received word from Congress that he was to join the American delegation to conclude peace with England. For Jefferson, the appointment was a much-needed reprieve. Two months prior, his wife Martha succumbed to a long bout of illness. Martha's death sent Jefferson into a profound state of melancholy, during which he secluded himself in his room for weeks. When he finally emerged from his quarters... He rode his horse aimlessly through the countryside. Mad with grief, Jefferson leapt at the opportunity to sail abroad as a much-needed distraction. Yet, before he could set out, he learned that a provisional peace had already been agreed upon, and his services were no longer needed. After two years serving as a congressman, Jefferson learned that John Jay was returning to America, leaving vacant his very important role as minister to France. On the 5th of July, 1784, Jefferson left Boston with his 11-year-old daughter Patsy and his personal slave and valet, James Hemings. A month later, the trio pulled into port at La Havre and entered Paris on the 3rd of August. The City of Lights was unlike anything Jefferson had experienced up to that point. At the time, the largest city in the United States was Philadelphia, with 40,000 people. In stark contrast, the population of Paris was probably more than 600,000. Paris was also quite a bit more opulent than Philly. In fact, Jefferson arrived during the height of a building frenzy. After a lull in construction during the Seven Years' War, rich nobles and bourgeoisie sponsored urban projects the country was continually growing wealthier the country was continually growing wealthier at least for those at the top rungs of society moreover its lax economic regulations meant that virtually everyone of note engaged in speculation often in the form of real estate the result was that jefferson entered a grandiose city with stunning new hotels operas, bridges, markets, and public forums. Virtually every corner of the city offered a new delight for this brilliant architect who had studied great buildings in books, but who had never been to a city of any significance before. To enter Paris, he first had to pass through a brand new wall. At ten feet in height and eighteen miles in circumference, Paris' new wall was not for defending against enemy armies, but as a desperate attempt by the crown to squeeze out whatever money it could from its own citizens. The wall housed numerous customs barriers where people had to pay to leave or enter the city. The French hated this new task as an assault on their liberty and a further drain on their pockets. Jefferson himself bitterly complained about the entry fees, which was somewhat ironic, given that these were implemented to pay for France's military costs during the American War for Independence. As impressive as the privately owned hotels and theaters were, they paled in comparison to the state-sponsored public buildings. Among the many new great projects those that made the greatest impression on the visiting Virginian were the Oloblé, the Church of Saint-Genevieve, and the Hôtel de Somme. Today serving as the Bourse de Commerce, the Oloblé was originally a large-scale building for exchanging grains. Yet, the building's use of flowing arches elevated its more mundane function. Furthermore, it was crowned by a magnificent dome, which Jefferson described as the most superb thing on earth. When Jefferson later became president, he wanted to use the dome as a model for the House of Representatives, though his chief architect claimed it was impractical. The Hôtel de Somme was yet another remarkable example of neoclassicism, combining as it did Roman-style columns, busts, and front pieces. If Jefferson failed to get the dome he had wanted, he succeeded in using the Hôtel de Somme's façade as a model for the Capitol at Washington, D.C. One other significant building in Paris that appealed to Jefferson was the Church of saint Genevieve, Dedicated to the patron saint of Paris, the building was only finished in 1790, by which point it was seized by the revolutionary government whose leaders converted it into a temple of liberty. Thus, Saint-Genevieve was rechristened the Panthéon to house the bodies of the greatest figures in France. Given it was still under construction during Jefferson's tenure in Paris, and due to his own opposition to anything religious, the Virginian likely did not spend much time there. Still, it is possible that the fresco within its dome known as the Apotheosis of Saint-Genevieve, may have inspired the Apotheosis of Washington, a dome fresco in the United States Capitol which depicts General George Washington looking down at the proceedings from the clouds as if he were a guardian angel. Few cities could have so greatly impacted an 18th-century architect. These and other monuments inspired Jefferson to call for similar great works in the United States as a means of glorifying the nation and expressing its equivalence to the great European countries. Jefferson was just as inspired by Paris' flaws as he was by its triumphs. Given that Paris was an old city that had organically grown over millennia, it had many narrow, winding streets, alleys, and overpopulated areas rife with filth, crime, and disease. Paris' dual nature of soaring marble and back-alley misery convinced Jefferson that the United States needed to construct a new capital city from scratch with a logical layout. Through careful urban planning, Jefferson wanted to avoid the problems of poverty, disease, and unrest, while creating a capital that exemplified the greatness of the young nation. Thus, in 1791, a little more than a year after leaving Europe, did Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson work with the French architect Pierre L'Enfant to design the new capital. As he did, he specifically instructed him to model the new city's buildings on that of the modern Louvre, Garde Meubles, and the Hôtel de Somme, while also drawing from the examples of antiquity. Jefferson spent most of his time in Europe within the city limits of Paris. Thus, his architectural experience was primarily dedicated to modern buildings. Yet, he did manage to take a small trip to the south of France, where he came into contact with Roman ruins. The one that had the greatest impact on him was the Maison Cahay in Nîmes. Built under the Roman Emperor Augustus for the worship of the imperial cult, it remains one of the best-preserved Roman ruins to this day. In a letter to a friend, Jefferson wrote that he spent hours staring at the temple like a lover at his mistress. In true obsessive fashion, Jefferson built a model based on the Maison Carrée, which became the blueprint for the Virginia state capitol. Through these and other projects, Thomas Jefferson brought neoclassicism to America. To the man who had spent most of his life living in the rural countryside and occasionally visited what could only be called a city in the sparsely populated United States, Paris was teeming with wonders. Aside from the monumental buildings, it also boasted one of the greatest concentrations of brilliant minds. By the time Jefferson arrived in Paris, his compatriot, Benjamin Franklin, was a celebrity who was in contact with virtually everyone worth knowing. One of the few men who could rival Franklin was the Marquis de Lafayette, whose military exploits made him a sensation, especially in the wake of Franco-American victory. If Jefferson respected Franklin, he did not take easily to Lafayette, who he described as incredibly vain, with an incessant need to be the center of attention. Yet, Jefferson eventually became friends with the Marquis, and the two corresponded for the rest of their lives. Through these two friends, Jefferson encountered the most accomplished French scientists, thinkers, and artists of the age. Of particular interest to the Virginian was Antoine Laurent de Lavoisier. Lavoisier was even then recognized as one of the greatest chemists who had ever lived. Among his accomplishments were discovering oxygen, hydrogen, and playing a role in creating the metric system. For these and other feats, Franklin honored him with an induction into the American Philosophical Society. Another towering figure was Marie-Jean-Antoine Nicolas de Carita, Marquis de Condorcet. Jefferson and Condorcet quickly struck up a friendship, both in admiration of each other's scientific work and their mutual love of the classics. Condorcet, who was the permanent secretary of the French Academy of Sciences, was a classic Enlightenment figure, known for his work advancing mathematics and for his radical politics. Condorcet was a great admirer of the United States, believing that its nascent republic could serve as a model for France. Jefferson welcomed this empathetic attitude, which was so far removed from the standard Parisian outlook that the U.S. was a strange, half-savage, Anglophile backwater. If Jefferson appreciated Condorcet's pro-American outlook, he did not approve of just how liberal the Frenchman was. Condorcet believed that all forms of societal discrimination should be abolished, Including those based on religion, sex, and race. In 1788, Brissot de Warville founded the Societe des Amis des Noirs, the Society of the Friends of the Blacks, with the stated aim of ending slavery. Condorcet enthusiastically joined, as did Lafayette. When they invited Jefferson, he declined, stating that he had to remain neutral in French political affairs.
0: Fabulously Delicious is a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Check out other shows at evergreenpodcast.com. If you're enjoying this episode, then you should check out more of the Fabulously Delicious The French Food Podcast Story Of series. We've talked about other fabulous chefs that have made history in one way or another in French food. Some of the people we've discovered have been... People like the father of French cuisine, some would say, Marie-Antoine Carême. Auguste Scoffier, who set up the working processes in today's commercial kitchens. Eugène Brazier, who many would say is the mother of French cooking, well, at least one of the most famous and important Mère Lyonnaise. And another fabulous French woman who founded the acclaimed Le Cordon Bleu, Elizabeth Brassard. To learn about these and many more other fabulous French chefs and cooks, And their stories, please check out on Fabulously Delicious, the French Food Podcast Story of Series.
1: Not all of Jefferson's acquaintances were so amicable, and he soon came into conflict with Georges Louis Leclerc, Comte de Buffon. As the director of the Jardin du Roi, he was a major figure in natural science who famously sponsored trips to Africa and the Pacific to gather plant species for further study. However, Buffon held pseudoscientific views on the biological potential of the New World, claiming that the air, the Earth, overloaded with humid and noxious vapors, are unable either to purify themselves or to profit by the influence of the sun who darts in vain his most enlivening rays upon this frigid mass. The Western Hemisphere is limited to the production of moist plants, reptiles, and insects, and can afford nourishment only to cold and feeble animals. Buffon and his contemporaries believed that the hostile environment of the Western Hemisphere would inevitably lead to the degeneration of plants, animals, and humans who traveled there from the Eastern Hemisphere. Consequently, he believed that no proper civilization could succeed in the Americas. Jefferson was furious at these attacks on his homeland. His entire purpose for being in Europe was to persuade Europeans that the United States could become a politically and economically viable country which could draw upon foreign political support and investment. Jefferson vehemently attacked the degeneration theory, leading many to drop their most anti-American views. However, the idea that the Americas was a savage place that would never reach European standards of development persisted when the minister to france wasn't hobnobbing with great thinkers he enjoyed the company of great artists his contacts included none other than jacques louis david david was the most celebrated painter of his age whose pieces the oath of the horatii and the death of socrates were regarded as the epitome of french neoclassicism Perhaps just as famous was Elisabeth Vigée Lebrun. As a woman, Lebrun did not have the same access to training that her male peers did. A self-taught painter, she became one of the most accomplished artists of her age, whose career took off when she became the personal portrait painter to Queen Marie Antoinette. Jefferson's preferred artist, by far, was the sculptor Jean-Antoine Houdon. Franklin had previously invited Houdon to visit Mount Vernon, where he made a sculpture of George Washington. Jefferson hired Houdon many times, commissioning busts of himself, Lafayette, Turgot, and Voltaire, among others, all of which eventually found a home at Monticello. While Jefferson spent much of his time in salons, with notables, he also made time to explore the great happenings across the city. Paris was then exploding with scientific, intellectual, literary, and artistic productions, the type of which the American could never have witnessed at home. One particular incident that stood out was a hot air balloon demonstration. On the 19th of September, 1784, Jefferson John Adams, and all those who could afford a ticket, attended a ceremony at the Tuileries Gardens. There, les Frères Robert, in English, the Robert Brothers, filled a balloon with hydrogen and took off into the sky, which disappeared after a few hours, with its passengers landing safely in the commune of Beauvray. This was a spectacular event, one which took place a year to the day following the first manned balloon flight by the Montgolfier brothers. Paris had a long established reputation as a center for art, and it was in full bloom in the 1780s. The largest venue was none other than the twin palaces of the Tuileries and the Louvre in the heart of Paris. While nominally royal palaces, The monarchy had abandoned both for Versailles. The Tuileries was then occupied by rich state pensioners who used its lavish interior to house plays and concerts. Opposite the Tuileries, the Louvre was a haven for artists and academics. Every two years, the Louvre hosted an exhibition of the finest paintings in the country— Jefferson was an avid attendee of the palace exhibitions, yet, ever the architect, he was most fascinated by the famous Louvre Colonnade, the famous eastern entry to the Louvre. His obsession with the Colonnade reawakened during the designing of Washington, D.C., when he used the facade as a template for the United States Capitol's eastern and western entrances. Of all the venues in Paris, none were more famous, or infamous, than the Palais-Royal. One block north of the Louvre, the building was originally called the Palais-Cardinal when it was occupied by Cardinal Richelieu. Its name changed to Palais-Royal when the head of government gifted it to Louis XIII, who in turn passed it on to his son, Louis XIV. However, the Sun King had a far greater palace, Versailles, and so he gave the Palais Royal to his brother, the Duke of Orleans, after which it became the property of the House of Orleans. By the 1780s, the palace passed into the possession of Louis Philippe II. After disgracing himself as a naval commander during the American War of Independence, the Duke of Orleans retired from the military and set to work on his great project. In short order, he turned the palace into the center of Parisian debauchery. Architects reconstructed the great theaters where Molière had once called home, workers built arcades which served as shopping centers, restaurants, gambling houses, billiard halls, cafés, spaces for clubs and scientific expositions, and, of course, brothels. Even more scandalous than prostitution was politics. The Palais Royal provided an open venue for all political voices and quickly became a hotbed for anti-government speakers. These speakers were not of the caliber of Voltaire or Montesquieu, but were mostly cranks, who dealt in imaginary scandals and gossip rather than profound ideas of statecraft. Still, they drew an audience, which was what mattered. The palace was also famous for banned literature. Despite heavy prohibitions, body tracts blasting the monarchy and nobility were regularly disseminated. Jefferson was fascinated by the entire spectacle— and believed that the United States should create its own malls, albeit with stricter morals. Paris was an overwhelming experience for the man from Monticello. Its streets teemed with new inventions, scientific discoveries, and forms of art. Its architecture, cuisine, and fashion were second to none. Having lived in a rural country, Jefferson leapt at the chance to meet with so many people who were his intellectual equal. Yet, he also believed that beneath France's accomplishments was a deep rot. He saw a country whose citizens were either authoritarian Catholics or extreme libertines, with little in between. Neither of these two extremes appealed to his vision of a country of morally upright yeoman farmers. Furthermore, Jefferson was never fully at ease in his role as minister to France. He was not at all like Benjamin Franklin, who was never without at least a few courtesans at his side and whose bottomless charm made him the most famous man in Paris. Jefferson was a lanky, shy man who was awkward around women. Finally, he was troubled by how expensive life in Paris was. He regularly complained that he had to spend both his government stipend and much of his own money just to keep up appearances. He repeatedly worried that any sign of financial problems would result in powerful and influential people turning their backs on him. While Paris was a remarkably rewarding experience for Jefferson personally. Professionally, it was an abject failure. His only success was a relatively unimportant agreement between the United States and France over the rights of consulates in both countries. In fairness to Jefferson, the United States was undergoing its own political turmoil. Its post-war government was a confederation, With a weak national government, one which eventually collapsed and was replaced by the U.S. Constitution in 1788. By the time the U.S. adopted a strong central government, Jefferson's time abroad was nearing its end. In 1789, he prepared to leave to settle his daughters into high society. Before Jefferson departed, the early stages of the French Revolution began. He was present at the opening of the Estates General at Versailles on the 5th of May, 1789. Jefferson further witnessed a gathering of the Third Estate with sympathetic members of the First and Second in the Church of Saint-Louis and declared that this is the first time that churches have been made some good use of. Despite ostensibly remaining neutral, Jefferson openly supported the revolution, heaping praise upon its nonviolent nature. He declared that with the taking of the Bastille, there had never been so great a fermentation that produced so little injury. Nevertheless, not all was well. Civil unrest became common, and Jefferson complained to police that his house had been robbed three times. Among his last acts in Paris, Jefferson allowed Lafayette and other notables to use his house to discuss what form France's new government should take. On the 26th of August, the minister to France hosted a gathering of eight figures, among them Lafayette, Duport, Bonave, Lamette, Blason, Mounier, La Tour Mavogre, and Dago. It was there decided that there should be a single legislature, and the king granted a veto. Afterwards, the Marquis de Lafayette turned to the author of the Declaration of Independence for help in editing his own work, which became the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. That fall, Jefferson held a going-away party, whose guests included Lafayette, Condorcet, and the Duc de la Rochefoucauld. Jefferson firmly believed that he would return before long and establish ties between the United States and an increasingly democratic France. This proved not to be the case. Shortly after arriving in the United States, President George Washington asked Jefferson to be his Secretary of State. What followed was a long career in national politics, one which kept Jefferson from ever returning to France. Fate was not kind to many of Jefferson's friends. Lavoisier would be executed by guillotine in 1793 during the Reign of Terror, while Condorcet died in prison a year later. Following the storming of the Tuileries Palace on the 10th of August 1792, the Duc de la Rochefoucauld went into exile first to England, then to the United States, where he met Jefferson again at Monticello. He eventually returned to France during the Restoration. Lafayette survived the Revolution and later political upheavals and toured the United States in 1824, meeting with Jefferson after 25 years apart and just two years before the latter's death. Jefferson's Paris was a paradox. It was simultaneously a modern city and one stifled by the past. Caught between forward-thinking radicals and backwards-looking traditionalists, debauchery was the only common meeting place between the two. For a man looking to form an all-new country, the minister to France wanted to adopt the positive attributes of Paris without its vices. The results can be found in American government, law, and culture, though they are most easily seen in its buildings, many of which copy French masterpieces.
0: That's it for another episode of Season 3 of Fabulously Delicious. I hope you enjoyed the first episode in this collaboration with Gary from the French History Podcast. What's the most fabulous thing you've learned from today's episode? Let me know by contacting me via Instagram, slide into my DMs at fabulously, or you can email me on contact at com. as I love to chat with you all. We could just chat about France, French food in the US or wherever it is that you live because I just love talking about food and especially French food. Thank you for listening and remember, you know what my motto is, whatever you do, do it fabulously. Merci beaucoup. And Bonap. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo.